one of the ways I, I sometimes prepare my sermons is, is just drawing up a list of all the key themes, all the key issues in a text. And make sure that, that wherever God's Word leads us in the preaching of His Word, that we wouldn't miss the really key instrumental elements of, of that Word for us today. And as I turn to Genesis 22, uh, the list got quite long. <laughs> There's a lot of really profound things going on in this text. It is a text uh, that is quite mysterious and that um, rewards our study, our prayer. Um, briefly, a short list of things we should be mindful of. This is the bookend of the Abrahamic cycle. There are a lot of parallels to Genesis 12. When God calls Abraham out of his homeland to go to a place he will show him. And again, here, God calls Abraham. He, he calls him in faith out of his home to go uh, somewhere where he doesn't know. Um, there's an echo here of the last chapter, Genesis 21, where God told Abraham that he had to disown his uh, son by the slave woman, Ishmael. He rises up early and saddles his donkey in Genesis 21, as he does again here. But what's most important, perhaps, brothers and sisters, is that as we think of Abraham as the father of all believers, we often think of him as a model, uh, someone who teaches us how to be a believer. And he is, that's true. And we've looked at that through this series. Um, But Abraham is also a type. And in this text, he's a type of both God the Father and God the Son, uh, the true and faithful Israelite. He is the father who sacrifices his son. For the blessing of the nations and his offspring. He is also the obedient second Adam. Because of his covenant obedience, he gets an entire nation of children. Just as Jesus Christ does. He's a substitute and a mediator. Isaac is the true and faithful son. Isaac bears the wood for his own sacrifice on his shoulders. He is cut off uh, by his circumcision on that wood. He is the Lamb of God. He is a symbol of the resurrection. The beloved firstborn is not withheld, but is sacrificed. And Abraham is tested. And finally, perhaps the central theme of this whole section is the provision of the Lord. The Lord provides a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin and guilt. The Lord appears to his people on the mountain in the place of worship, even as he does today in the form of bread and wine. And the Lord there makes an oath, an unchangeable promise that in the New Testament, saints in Hebrews 6 can look back to and cling to as the anchor and the foundation of their faith. So what do we learn from this complex, mysterious text? I hope and pray that the Spirit will work through these words to reveal the gospel, to comfort us, to assure us, and to give us peace. This is God's holy word. Please rise for the standing of Scripture if you are able. Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his youngest, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Booz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jitlath, and Bethuel, Bethuel, father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Taba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maakah. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me now as we pray the prayer of illumination found in our worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. For the reading of the New Testament, we turn to Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 22, found on page 1008 in your pew Bible. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offering be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of, his, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Thus is the reading of the New Testament. Please join me for the prayer of understanding found in your uh, bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. 
We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. So the outline in our bulletin sees uh, three uh, broad movements in our text today. The, the sacrifice, the substitute, and the Lord's uh, provision. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The word knife here uh, should probably may be read as cleaver. You're talking about a large implement uh, used to hack to pieces an animal uh, that it might be laid upon the altar to butcher an animal for this purpose that it could be burned up and consumed to ashes. And this story is known among the Jews as the Akedah, uh, the Hebrew word we find in our text for binding, the binding of Isaac. For in this binding, uh, we see the obedient determination of the father and the son who, old enough to carry the wood, was old enough to understand what was going on, probably old enough to fight off his dad uh, if he did not agree. And we read twice in our text as they're rising up on the mountain and they have this dialogue. It's framed by this line. They, they went both of them together. These words frame Isaac's horrific question. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So they went, both of them together, talking to one another. Calvin, John Calvin, believes that this binding required Isaac's cooperation. And that uh, Moses doesn't give us the whole story. That uh, Abraham told him why they were going to the mountain, told him what God had commanded him, instructed his son. And so father and son, patriarchs, together submit to the will of their heavenly father. Of course, we call the slain of a man homicide. If you kill a king, it's a regicide. Uh, father is murdered and called a patricide or a fratricide for a brother. The Latin's very useful that way. But this is filicide. This is murder commanded of God. At the heart of Genesis 22 is a great evil and mystery. How can God, a good and loving God, command an atrocity? The moral evil of a father killing his own son. Philicide. The problem of evil, which so many unbelievers today use to superficially uh, dismiss the existence of God, says that the existence of evil in the world is inconsistent with a good and loving God we find in the Bible. And the one problem with the problem of evil is that we don't always find a good and loving God in the Bible. In this story, a good God and an evil world don't merely coexist. It's not an accidental correlation. In this story, a good God commands evil. Intentional, causative will to to torment. The tragedy, the mystery of this story has inspired countless books and sermons and reflections. In college, uh, I read Kierkegaard's, uh, Soren Kierkegaard's, uh, Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, which is a book-length reflection, meditation, on Abraham's thought process, a retelling of this story from many different perspectives. 
And in these books, these sermons, so often we are drawn to the human drama. We are drawn to the drama of faith, to the idea of paradox that we find in this text. But we know, brothers and sisters, what is unique about how we sit under the preaching of this word, this text today. We know that the story comes to us today, uh, comes uh, not from a human hand, not merely from the pen of Moses, but it comes from the Spirit of Christ. Peter tells us in his epistle that the Spirit of Christ was bearing witness in the prophets, the fathers of old, revealing to us the sufferings and glories of the Messiah to come. The death and resurrection of Christ is revealed on every page of the Old Testament. The Spirit recorded these words, Peter says, so that the good news of the gospel might be preached to us. That we might understand sacrifice. These words aren't here so we could have a a reflection or a philosophical discussion about morality about the existence of God, not for the sake of mystery. They're here for our comfort. It's, it's shocking, right? But Abraham rose his hand with a cleaver in it over his son at God's command for our comfort. So I want to look at how possibly this horrible story could be comforting. First, and I want to draw our attention to the, the sacrifice that is at the heart of this story. Again, the story is a bookend uh, to the call of Abraham recorded in Genesis 12. We read there, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Go somewhere. You don't know where it is. Just go. And here again, God calls to him and says, Take your son, your only son. So in the last chapter, the child has finally, been, uh, has finally arrived. So now Abram has his son. And he says, The one whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now three chapters remain in the Abraham saga. Um, the next chapter we'll read of the death and burial of Sarah. Uh, Then in the next chapter, quite long, there's a story of where Abraham finds a wife uh, for Isaac. And that's hinted at in the closing verses here. Rebekah is born to his kindred back in Ur of Chaldeans. And then finally, the death and burial of Abraham. But that stuff's all really the epilogue. That stuff all is is the transition to the next chapter. Uh, This is the climax of God's covenant relation with Abraham. The father of this covenant. The father of all uh, believers. The father of many nations. And we were told he was promised that many nations would spring from his offspring. The child was born to Sarah. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, it's kind of the fruition of of, of the promise, right? Yay! Celebration! The child was born. He's weaned. We can get rid of Ishmael. We can dismiss of all the pursuit of the flesh. But it's a false complex, a false climax to the story. This story doesn't have a happy ending. Not just a saccharine, entirely happy ending. The Bible's not that simple. It sets up this climax of God's covenant relation with Abraham. You notice how we dip in Abraham's life? It's been like 40, 35, 40 years. And we get these snippets. This isn't a history. This isn't a biography of Abraham. This is covenant history coming down to us. And this climax of Abraham's covenantal faith 
of God's promises to him. This climax comes after, again, the passage of maybe 10 or 15 years from the last chapter. And when this uh, passage begins after these things, again, John Calvin in his commentary says, he's not just talking about what happened in chapter 21. He's talking about his whole life. It's been a long and brutal road for Abraham, the believer. A tortuous wait of over 25 years for a promised child. He had, during that time, had quite a bit of a dust-up with his wife and pursuing a, a child, according to the flesh, with Hagar. He had to disown that other child, Ishmael. There was famine during these years. He sojourned in a foreign land. He disavowed not once but twice his wife. More marital conflict. The life of Abraham, the life of faith for Abraham, who we must remember, is an ideal He's the believer. It's a difficult life. After all these things, after all these trials, that child, Isaac, was his salvation. It was his hope. Everything he had done had been for the blessing that God had promised would come by that child. He was the source of laughter in a dark life. The reward for which he had suffered and sacrificed. Oftentimes we read stories. Some in this church maybe have friends or loved ones or have experienced the loss or near loss of a child. Sometimes children are taken from us by a loving God through tragic accidents. And that's horrific. There's no greater loss for a parent. We have a lot more parents in this church now than the last time I preached this text. And that's a good thing for understanding the power and force of this text. That's tragic. But this is something entirely different. God asks Abraham not to suffer a tragic surprise loss. He asks him to premeditate the butchering of his son at his own hand. To cut some wood. To saddle a donkey. To build an altar. To go on a three-mile, three-day journey to sharpen the cleaver, to bind his son. He asks him not for a faithful response. He asks him for faithful, obedient action, day after day after day. Calvin tells us, I keep coming back to Calvin, it's a moving commentary. That Abraham's faith was tested in that the command of God seemed to subvert the very promise of God. God's word itself was tested to the uttermost. And Abraham's confidence and faith in that word. And that's why the first point in our outline is sacrifice. He was asked to sacrifice so much, everything. There are verbal echoes, I believe, of the sacrifice of, of Hagar, of sending away the slave woman and her child, because that was a sacrifice. Abraham probably thought, I've given up everything, God. I've given up all my life, everything I pursued for me, everything I wanted. I gave it up already. And you ask for more. Again, we need to wrap our heads around, I think, a key 
interpretive point in how we read the Bible. In this church, not in all churches, not all Christians do this or do it well. But we need to understand here that Abraham is not just an example for us. He is that. Abraham is not just a model for our faith. But what comes through in this passage so clearly is that Abraham is a type for us. He is a type and shadow. Abraham is a type of God the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who at his son's baptism, in a clear echo of this text, recall in three of the Gospels we read that a voice came down from the heavens foreseeing the cross and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We might be tempted to think that for an omnipotent, all-powerful God, salvation is a piece of cake. It's no effort. What cost is it for God to save us? Why doesn't He save everyone? The jerk, right? That's what we say sometimes. What really did it cost God to save us from our sins? What did He have to give up? What did He sacrifice? Do not, dear children, be misled. The father who did not spare his own son, Paul tells us, but gave him up for us all, is also the father who will graciously give us all things. Romans 8 looks at the cost of our redemption. In the father's sacrifice and the son's sacrifice as a guarantee, as an assurance of his love for us. Our God is revealed as a loving Father. Our Savior is revealed as His beloved Son. And the sacrifice of this beloved Son is the greatest sacrifice known to man. We could not ever have wrapped our minds around this truth, this divine eternal truth, if Abraham had not raised his hand with a cleaver in it to butcher his son. Abraham is a picture, a type of God's love for us. And that's why in this text, he gives his son, not just so uh, you know things will go well for him, but he gives his son for the salvation of the nations. Abraham, in his obedience, in his submission to his father's word, is also a type of Christ. He has let go of his own scheming. He doesn't pursue the joy of the flesh. He gives everything so that his offspring can be blessed. He gives everything so that the world can be blessed through Isaac. He is a perfectly obedient son of the covenant. And his son secures the salvation of us all. We are his children in faith. Jesus died for our sins. Abraham offered Isaac for our sins. He is a type. He isn't the one who earned our salvation. Christ did. But he points us to that. That's why this text says, because you have done this thing, causing much confusion in the church. If you don't read this through the lens of typology, you will think that Abraham was saved by his obedience. That's impossible. But if you make that mistake, and many have, you would focus on Abraham and his sacrifice. No, this is about God. And finally, on this point of sacrifice, why this sacrifice? Why his son, his firstborn son, his only son? This horrific sacrifice, dear brothers and sisters, this great evil, this tragedy commanded, is indicative of the wages of sin, the death that is the natural and just fruit of our disobedience. In sacrificing Isaac, Abraham was, in essence, confessing his own sin. He was confessing the guilt he bore from birth, and his behavior 
This is the confession we all must make when we come to worship a holy God. Abraham had seen from a distance the fire raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he had gone on in the next chapter and committed a similar sin. He knew that. He knew what he deserved. It took him a long time to figure it out. Recall that the final plague on Egypt that Moses and Israel would have remembered so well as he was writing these words for the Israelites to comfort them, to give them assurance of God's favor. The final plague was what? The death of the firstborn son. This was the wage of their sin and rebellion. And the firstborn of Israel was forfeit as well. The text is absolutely clear about that in Exodus. The only reason Israelites' firstborn didn't die when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt was the blood of the Passover lamb spread over their doors. And so the angel of death passed over God's people. And in the Exodus, we read that the firstborn of the Israelites are still forfeit to God. God owns them. God mercifully allowed for their redemption of the firstborn. He allowed uh, the Israelites to, to use a substitute, a sacrifice, in the place of the life of their firstborn child. God also mercifully took the entire tribe of the Levites as his substitute for all of Israel's firstborn. And when you read this text, I think it's in Leviticus, um, it further shows that they calculate down to the man. There were so many thousand Levites and so many Israelite firstborn sons, and there was a difference of 273, and you had to collect some shekels to make up the difference. Some very precise calculating here. If God kept track of our sins... If God counted, no one could stand. But he does not. He casts them as far as the east is from the west. And so this great moral evil, this filicide, is really a picture of the great moral evil in our own hearts. A picture of our rebellion. Because when we rebelled against God, when Adam and Eve abandoned his life for the death of their own choosing... They, in essence, asked their father to slaughter them. They demanded God to kill them. They asked for a loving God to raise a knife. They called down the curse. But God refused. He interposed the precious blood of his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And that brings us to our second point. The substitute. James tells us that Abraham... In James chapter 2, he talks about this episode. He says, Abraham's faith is perfected, is completed through his obedience. A lifetime of of hedged faith, half-hearted, hesitant, hedged obedience and faithfulness bears fruit in this single-minded, focused, obedient response where he repeats in this text three times, Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. That's some real progress. What was Abraham thinking? Kierkegaard asks how Abraham could know that it was truly God's voice. Here's a good hint, brothers and sisters, for all of us mere mortals. 
If you hear a voice claiming to be God that tells you to kill someone, it's probably not God. And we know his character. It's not consistent with his promises. So why did Abraham believe that this was the voice of God? Note that God calls him by name. Abraham. Abraham. Repeatedly. The angel of the Lord from heaven. Abraham. Abraham. And Jesus tells us that my sheep hear my voice. Abraham hadn't heard from God as far as we know for over a decade. Years and years had passed. The last time he did hear from God, God said, do what your wife tells you. I mean, you know, go figure. But God, and rather Abraham, had been listening for God's voice for over 30 years. He had grown familiar with the Lord's voice. He knew it was God speaking to him. His faith in God, his faith in the word of God was perfected. And when it came to him bearing bad news, when this voice of God commanded something so troubling, he knew that he had no choice, that it was the path of wisdom to obey God even when it took him there. I can't help but quote Calvin again. Abraham was confident that the God who spoke was not his adversary. He knew by this time that God loved him. And he knew this was his voice. Abraham trusted God in the midst of this horrific command enough to follow this command because God's favor, his love, had been promised, signified, sworn, sealed, covenanted to him. He bore in his flesh the scars of the covenant, the cutting off of his flesh, even as we bear, you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, bear the washing, the charism of Christ, the anointing of the Spirit. Even as we taste the flesh and blood of Christ in the bread and wine, he knew God was not against him. Even this could be from God. God would be faithful even through this. So Hebrews tells us, by faith, this was his faith perfected, when he was tested, and this is a trial, a test, it says so, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. The author of Hebrews focuses on the hand raised with the cleaver. The son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Just in the last chapter. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. If there was ever a picture that salvation is a supernatural act, an act of new creation, it is this. Paul uses this language. God, uh, Abraham trusted in the God who gives life to the dead and the God who calls into existence things that do not exist. God, if you take my son of promise from me, I know that you're still going to bless me through the same son of promise. I don't know how. It's the limits of our wisdom and the limits of our flesh. Sometimes God does things that we don't understand. We never will understand them. And he believed in the God who raises sinners from the grave. Salvation isn't normal. It's not natural. It's not possible that sinners could escape this curse. But God did it. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God didn't tell him that, but he knew he would. Again, is he, is he dissembling? Is he, is he trying to calm Isaac down? Abraham believed the Lord would provide somehow, some way. 
He told his parents, or his servants rather, the boy and I will go and worship and we'll return to you, in the plural. We'll return to you. Again, is he lying to cover up this horrible thing that's about to happen? Or is he confident? He tells his son, God will provide. Faith demands a lot from us. It demands our all. Our catechism says we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior who's purchased us with his blood. Jesus says his disciples will take up their cross and follow him. They will leave houses and homes and mothers and brothers and fields behind to follow their Lord. But everything God asks of us, we are promised, he gives to us and a hundredfold more in the kingdom. That's not just in glory. That's here and now. God gives us abundantly here and now what we need. God provides for himself the sacrifices we must make. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Faith for Abraham was perfected when he withheld nothing. Not even the most precious thing. Behold, caught in the thicket by its horns, a ram, a substitute. God gives us what he asks of us always. And Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, we read in Second Chronicles 3, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. On this mountain, the temple of the Lord was built. The place where all those sacrifices for almost a thousand years were offered. Where the Lord had appeared to David. Where the Lord appeared to his people in the sacrifices, in the priestly garments. As Israel was constituted a holy nation of priests, they were reminded daily, morning and evening, that they were purchased by God as His most precious possession by the blood of a substitute. They were reminded annually by the Passover lamb. They were reminded daily by the guilt offerings. The priests served in place of their own sons, full time. This story, the foundation and basis of God's oath to them, promise, the promises which redeemed them from Egypt and brought them into the Holy Land, was a reminder that their very lives, the lives of their children, were owed to God in whole. Their blessing and their survival was due to the provision of a ram caught in the thicket. The whole tabernacle which would be erected on this very site is explained by this story. It explained their whole way of worship. It explains our way of worship, brothers and sisters. Why is there a sacrificial meal, a covenantal meal, that celebrates the death of God's only son, the breaking of his body, the pouring forth of his blood? The Romans thought that Christians were bizarre people who met in caves in the early morning hours and drank the blood of of other people because of this sacrifice, because of the Eucharist. As costly and as difficult as it was for Israel to take all these precious jewels and gold uh, to build uh, this tabernacle. First the tent in the wilderness and and then the temple. This cost, this glory, this beauty, this honor paled in comparison to what the father Abraham was willing to offer God. What he did offer to God and his son. He withheld nothing. And God provided it all. The whole tabernacle was built from the jewels, from the crowns of the Egyptians. 
The story of Isaac's binding is a picture of the sacrifice that was to serve as a model for Israel's worship through all their days. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a picture of the gospel. And this brings us in closing to our third and final point, the Lord's provision. Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide, is at the very center of this story and is at the center of our gospel comfort today. The language throughout this passage is on vision, sight, a lot of sight words. Moriah comes from the Hebrew word for see, for vision. Um, Indeed, instead of a place named Moriah, it could be translated as the land of vision, the land of visions. You know, a lot of pagan uh, religion, you go up to a high place to have a vision of God, right? Abraham lifts his eyes and sees the vision of the place of vision that God told him to go to. And the angel of the Lord comes out to him from heaven. He says, for now I know that you fear God. Seen, I have seen that you have not withheld your only son. And Abraham lifts his eyes and looks and behold, he sees the ram caught in the thicket. And so Abraham says, at this place, the Lord will appear. The Lord will provide on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided, could be translated on the mount of the Lord. He shall appear. And in our Lord Jesus Christ... It is the peering of the Lord that is His provision. God Himself had to come down from heaven. And the Spirit of Christ was in those prophets revealing the suffering and glory of the Messiah. The Lord's provision is the Lord's appearing. He is a substitute, a ram, a sacrifice for our sins. The binding of Isaac is the binding of Christ. The carrying of that wood is the carrying of the cross. Christ bound Himself. Abraham's faith has become sight in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the angel of the Lord, we read, appeared a second time from heaven and declares an oath. This is a very important part of our text that the New Testament draws upon. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring. That alludes to Abraham's name, father of many, as the stars of the heaven, the sand on the seashore. The covenant cut in the animals in Genesis 15 is the covenant cut in the foreskin of Abraham in Genesis 17 is here confirmed and cut and completed again in the blood and the life of a substitute. Hebrews 6 says that God swore by something. uh, There was nothing greater than himself, so he swore by himself. And that is the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ. In closing... We need to know, brothers and sisters, and time doesn't allow me to go into the Gospel of James, where he tells us that um, not by faith alone, but by works we're saved. And he uses this example of Abraham's obedience to remind us that faith is not a dead and lifeless thing. And it is not. As we have seen, Abraham's faith, James tells us, is completed, it's perfected. Faith does require us to let go of the things of the world. To take up our cross and to follow him. Faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. But that faith that saves us always works in us. It always transforms us. And we know that on the day of Christ's coming, we will be perfect. Our resurrection bodies will not sin. They will not want to sin. What a glory, what a blessing is promised to us. The book of Hebrews, which focuses so much on Abraham and Christ, on the sacrifice, on God's oath, closes with this promise, this benediction about the blood of the eternal covenant. 
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. The Lord will provide, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord will provide. Merciful God, be with us this day. Confirm your oath to us, sworn to Abraham, sealed in Christ's death and resurrection. This new covenant of which we, by your grace and mercy, have been made partakers. And give us peace, dear Lord, in a a world full of sadness and sorrow. Give us peace and assurance in knowing that you are not our adversary. That you have given up your own dear son. And you will give us graciously all things we need for body and soul. Until the day of Christ's appearing. Amen.